The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. to move forward with articles of impeachment against President Trump, potentially making him the only president in history to suffer the same fate twice. The U.S. equities are look poised to retreat from their record levels with futures pointing lower and the 10-year Treasury yield breaking through 1.1% despite a disappointing jobs report with December payrolls falling. The top U.S. banks are set to delist over 500 structured Hong Kong products, pointing to broader fallout from the White House ban on companies with ties to the Chinese military. And global coronavirus cases surge, with China seeing its biggest daily increase since July and the U.S. hitting a record number of cases, while U.K. health officials warn of a strained health system. The NHS needs you now more than it's needed anyone at any point and what it needs people to do is to stay at home and daimler says it expects the pandemic to hit demand in the first half of this year but the ceo tells cnbc in an exclusive interview that the german car maker still hopes to deliver an increase in annual sales we have to calculate with the first six months of this year still having some, some disruption here and there and we have to be flexible and deal with those things. But the underlying demand that we felt coming back in the second half of 2020, that underlying demand, we see that also in 2021. Right, a very warm welcome to the show with Karen, Jeff and myself. Of course, a huge number of big stories around the world and the COVID story, as Karen was mentioning in the headlines, absolutely front and foremost. But the events in the United States uh, of the last week or so mean that we're going to start off the show with that as well, because let's face it as well, the events surrounding Mr. Trump as well are quite extraordinary, unprecedented and historical. So let's just go through what's happening as well. Democrats are now pushing to remove the president uh, from office after last week's deadly assault on the US Capitol. Don't forget, of course, the president's only got, what are we today, the 11th? He's only actually got nine days left before the inauguration. An inauguration, by the way, that he won't be attending. And just for historical uh, precedence, and so you know, he's not the first US president or the second or the third to actually not attend inauguration. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, uh, Andrew Jackson as well did not attend uh, the uh, presidential inauguration for the person who was succeeding them as well. So, Nancy Pelosi now says the House will first vote to push Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. Uh, if he does not, the House will then proceed from this, the 25th Amendment, to perhaps a second impeachment trial. Now, speaking, uh, basically, it makes uh, Mr. Trump the only president to be impeached twice as well. And you know the, the problems here. The problem is, of course, the fact that it's such a tight time frame. But here's something very interesting as well that you need to be aware of. You can impeach Mr. Trump after the inauguration of Mr. Biden. And of course, one thing that President-elect Biden doesn't want is that his early stages of his first term to be dominated by events surrounding Mr. Trump. So this is a political calculation on both 
sides of the divide. Senator Pat Toomey has joined a handful of other Republicans, meanwhile, in calling for the president's resignation. But in an interview with NBC's Meet the Press, Mr Toomey said there wasn't enough time for Congress to impeach Trump before he leaves office. The president spiraled down into a kind of madness uh, that was different. Uh, I'm sorry if, if people don't acknowledge that. I think what he did this past week is wildly different from the offensive tweets that were common during his presidency. And I don't think that those tweets uh, clearly indicated that this was coming. There's an extraordinary situation where people who have, and we'll use the word, it's the uh, word du jour, uh, enabled Mr. Trump for so long uh, to carry out his position and carry out uh, his way of doing business in the Republican Party and indeed in the administration as well. So many of those people now are standing by and saying, well, actually, we disagree with Mr. Trump right at the last moment, including the White House former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, who resigned, yeah, last week. Uh, he says the president has now crossed the line uh, he never crossed before. Wednesday was a fundamental threat to the United States. It speaks to what's, what makes us American. It's an existential type of thing. It's not, it's not superficial. It's deep and it's real and it's different, which is why you saw so many resignations this week uh, and didn't see them over the course of the last couple of years. Wednesday changed everything. So let me bring in Jeff here as well, because Jeff, I've got a question and I just saw a little bit of news um, early this morning, late last night, which I think was quite interesting. And my question for the audience is what hurts President Trump the most? What is really hurting him at the moment? One, losing the election. Two, losing access to his 89 million followers on Twitter. Or three, and I wonder if this is up there as well, the PGA now turning around and saying, no, we're not going to use your Bedminster course anymore, Mr. Trump. We don't want our brand associated with you because the PGA was going to be held there in 2022. Good morning to you, my friend. Yeah, very good morning to you. Well, given how desperately President Trump seems to need uh, positive reaffirmation, I suspect that the PGA uh, may be the issue that uh, is front and centre for him this morning. I think um, Twitter, we can deal with that one in a minute. I think Twitter and the other social platforms that are talking about permanently banning him or suspending his accounts have got a whole lot of other troubles to deal with because I think that raises all sorts of uh, issues about the role of these uh, social media platforms and whether they should be allowed to turn off people however loathsome. But we'll set that aside for the moment because I do think that the uh, PGA issue will be the one that the president is smarting most about this morning because, of course, uh, if there is one thing that President Trump wants at this stage, that is a life after the presidency. And I know there's been a lot of speculation that he may have a television channel planned or some other platform for him to ex express himself. But if increasingly uh, brand Trump is seen as toxic and other parties are unwilling to do business deals with him or wor work with his organization, then I think that will be uh, perceived by him and those around him as very difficult going forward. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a huge amount to discuss about. I mean, again, there was lots of um, reason. Karen, you, you're our, 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 our person who looks more at these things than perhaps Jeff and I have done historically as well. But they've 
taken the advantages of the Trump administration for four years plus the social media science, haven't they? They've done incredibly well out of it as well with the advertising associated with the huge explosion of activity surrounding Mr. Trump and indeed his style of doing politics as well. Again, it does seem to have come incredibly late in the game that they've decided that he's finally crossed the line. Right. I mean, the, the condemnation is uh, pretty universal when you consider what happened last week on Capitol Hill. But if you rewind a little bit further, the, the much stronger language from the social media companies really started just before the US election. You saw that very ramped up focus on the sharing of certain type of speech and making sure that the statements from politicians were correct, that those statements were actually founded on legitimate purposes and not false news fake news being spread. So I think there's been a trend. That said, I mean, what you're now seeing, opportunism from other social media platforms trying to get ahead where you've seen the closure of certain sites. So, so really there's point. an opportunity for others now. And that. Exactly, but, I mean, right. But, but one thing that's, and, and again, we're actually breaking up the rundown a little bit here, but we'll get back to JP Morgan in a second, Jeff. But, but I think it's very interesting. We've talked a lot about the dominance of these four or five um, technological bear moths that are out there as well. Your Google, your Amazon, your Apple, your Twitter, your Facebook as well. Now, let's take this to its natural conclusion. Are these smaller sites that, again, uh, the alt-right and QAnon are now being forced to migrate to, will they be able to pick up traction in the way that other tech companies cannot compete with those five bear moths we Maybe. just mentioned as Why well. Why not? You saw it in the mainstream press. You saw channels that have uh, come out of nowhere that have become mainstream news channels. And uh, they, they serve a particular uh, side of politics. Why isn't that the part. same with social media? I, I tell you why, one reason why the scale matters, and of course, is because the advertisers, of course, have been uh, at loggerheads with the likes of Facebook and Twitter at various stages this year. But face, especially Facebook, let's be honest. I, I, think, I think that advertisers are going to be very loathe to associate themselves with niche sites that perhaps appeal to a certain demographic which they don't want their brand yeah, in the round. That's a good round, point about international uh, But I'm sure that some advertisers <laughs> will want to target that demographic too. I don't know which advertisers not, will. Not global international companies, but I'm sure there might be some domestic ones in located in particular jurisdictions that think that uh, some of those supporters, uh, right, very far right-wing supporters, might in fact be their well, customers look, too. The, we've been at the desk nine minutes, and I'm going to beg to differ, but, we'll, but, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll send this one back to Jeff as well because uh, it's, it's our first beg to differ this year. <laughs> Jeff. Um, OK. Well, what we, we made it all the way through till, what, Monday the 11th of January. So a uh, little pat on the back for everybody around the desk. Um, look, I mean, the, this the whole issue of uh, to platform or no platform is going to be with us uh, for some time to come, I think. And uh, we're going to have to get into this uh, o overcoming programs because I think there's a whole lot here away from President Trump that we do need to address about the flow of information and the accuracy of information. I, uh, I tend to, I, I think, like a lot of people, lean towards that more liberal interpretation that I think Voltaire laid down about you should have the right to say something, however unpalatable it does seem. And I think when it comes to the First Amendment, that's pretty much laid out in the American Constitution. So what Twitter does here, I think, will be watched very closely. Twitter has banned President Trump for life. The social media giant says that after reviewing the president's recent tweets, it took the move to, quote, uh, reduce the risk of further incitement of violence. Uh, many platforms have banned or restricted the president's accounts, uh, including Facebook 
and Instagram, uh, where he's banned for at least the next two weeks. Um, I think we've done pretty good service on this. So let me move on and talk about this banking story, which I think, again, is going to be uh, very significant uh, in the broader picture of US-China relations. JP Morgan Chase and Citigroup have announced a halt to political donations following last week's riot at the US Capitol building. In a statement, JP Morgan said contributions to both the Republican and Democratic parties will be paused for at least six months. Meanwhile, Citigroup also told employees it will not send money to any lawmaker in the first quarter and vowed not to back candidates who did not support the rule of law. And of course, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. There's another story we're going to focus on, which deals with the withdrawal of uh, structured products from the Hong Kong market by US banks. Just another area where business is being drawn into political issues. And I'm sure a lot of these executives feel very uncomfortable about that, Steve. Yeah, brilliant stuff, Jeff. Thank you. Okay, look, the US economy saw its first monthly job losses since April, with the non-farm payrolls falling, falling by 140,000 in December. Now, that was well below the expectations for a gain of 50,000. Virus-sensitive industries, such as hospitality, continue to be the worst hit due to widespread restrictions. The unemployment rate remained pretty steady, unfortunately, stubbornly high at 6.7% in line with expectations. But these markets, Karen, have been absolutely fascinating their gravity defying pull perhaps not gravity defying perhaps it's entirely logical why they are where they are it's a reflation trade on stimulus isn't it even bad news is good news that we saw in our payrolls report and the market is primed for fresh stimulus conversations this week from president-elect biden they're eyeing the potential for two thousand dollar stimulus checks and uh, three trillion infrastructure spending package and uh, you've seen that bounce as a result uh, right across the board uh, fresh records eked out for the dow the s p and nasdaq in session and Take a look at that level we're now perched on on the Dow. 31,000 plus is what we're watching. It took just 29 trading days to climb to this level. And banks, energy firms, a big part of that mix. But you can see Friday's session, technology names also a key contributor playing some of those green themes. Tesla in the electric vehicle space uh, showing its dominance now. Part of the S&P 500, it was the top mover for the S&P and also for the Nasdaq. That is a play into what the Biden administration may do on the uh, clean energy side. So uh, that was a big mover. But uh, right across the board, you can see a bounce. Some of this inspired by what you're seeing on treasuries as well. Let's take a look at that market as we talk about a reflation trade. Very classic to see also yields marching north and we breached the 1.10% mark. You can see 1.11 is what we've got on that US 10-year yield. So there's been an aggressive push to this 10-month top that you're seeing on those yields. A uh, quick look at what we've got on US futures as we get set up for the trading day today. It uh, was a strong march north last week, as you can see. And uh, as a result, uh, futures this morning have just been a little bit softer. You can see red flashing up on the boards at this day. It's also uh, the start of earnings season and there are some concerns about how far we've risen on markets now, the entry point for a lot of investors and what this earnings season now needs to produce. A quick look at uh, what we're seeing on the European markets early on. It was a stunning pace for the FTSE in particular last week, which looks a little bit flat this morning, as you can see. But the gains are strong, uh, more than 6% of the upside, well and truly outpacing what you saw across on some of the other major markets, more on the range of about 2.5%, for instance, for the DAX. So uh, we're looking a little bit uh, weak at the start of the session early on this morning. You can see uh, red arrows uh, marching onto those European markets. Jeff. 
Uh, okay, Karen, thank you. Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in just a moment. A trio of top U.S. banks have decided to delist hundreds of structured products from the Hong Kong market as they respond to the direction from the U.S. president to disengage from Hong Kong. We'll have more on that story in a moment. And for more on potential impeachment proceedings against President Trump, don't forget to check out the Sportbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Let's focus on this story uh, centered around Hong Kong then. Three key U.S. banks, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, have issued filings with the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to delist 500 structured products after a U.S. crackdown on telecom companies linked to the Chinese military. Let's get out to Emily in Hong Kong, who can tell us a little bit more about what these products are and what this will mean for investors who may own them. Emily, good morning. Hi, good morning, uh, Jeff. And of course, uh, these moves by the U.S. banks, uh, similar to brokerages uh, here in Hong Kong, spoke to some traders, similar moves where they can't deal in the affected sanctioned stocks. Uh, so the likes of a China Mobile, China Unicom, as well as Sinook, uh, in fears that uh, that could be affecting any business that they want to do with the United States. Maybe it could be they, they could sell uh, the stock for U.S. investors, but uh, some banks have even decided that they're not going to deal with it at all. They're just not going to touch it. But we're seeing really big gains come through here in China mobile shares in Hong Kong trade today, up about 6.5%. China Unicom uh, floating around with a 6% gain as well. As you all know, Chinese telcos, uh, they're going to be delisted from the New York Stock Exchange come 5 p.m. Hong Kong time. Uh, so that's just about two and a half hours from now. Uh, we've got ADRs, uh, the, uh, the executive order, excuse me, on these uh, companies like China Unicom, China Mobile, Sinook, effective from 10.30 p.m. Hong Kong time, and that's 9.30 a.m. U.S. time. Uh, th- th- on the back of that, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan delisting something like 500 Hong Kong listed structure products. And we found this out because they made a uh, filing to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The exchange saying that they're working closely with relevant issuers to ensure orderly delisting and facilitate buyback arrangements arranged by the issuers. Goldman Sachs suspended all trading in Hang Seng Index callable bull bear contracts and delisted them. Uh, the likes of Mobile and Sinook are on the U.S. sanctions list and Hang Seng components as well. Uh, so we also saw a move by the Tracker Fund here in Hong Kong. That's 2800.hk saying that they're not going to be making any new investments in these sanctioned companies, and it is no longer appropriate for U.S. funds to be investing in that. Uh, So this is all in response to uh, the moves by the Trump administration to target these Chinese-linked military companies. And then all of this has already been announced in terms of these deadlines that's going to be today. Uh, So we're seeing all the 
response, uh, the FTSE Russell, the MSCI, S&P, uh, saying that they're going to be, of course, uh, pulling out of all these stocks, removing it from their uh, benchmark indices and uh, the likes of all these banks making similar moves to make sure that they don't infringe on any of these U.S. rules or the restrictions that have been imposed. Uh, but the market here having a bounce back. Of course, all of this news was coming through last week, the delisting and then on and off again. Uh, the, the market here is uh, very strong today. In Hong Kong, uh, we're at about a one-year high, 27,884. And all the telco stocks today rebounding from the big losses that we had last week. Now, in a separate story also due to do with the United States and uh, maybe rubbing China the wrong way is this development in the Taiwan relations. Uh, Taiwan presidential office hailing the U.S. decision to lift restrictions on contact between officials of the two sides, the counterparts between Taiwan and the United States. Uh, Taiwan saying that this is a reflection of a solid partnership. Uh, this is in response to Pompeo uh, and his bid to regularize interactions between the two sides. Taiwan thanks the U.S. State Department and all Americans' longstanding support helping to facilitate the current close and uh, friendly bilateral relation, saying that Taiwan is going to be continuing to seek a deeper cooperation with the United States. And this does come as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is scheduled for a trip to Taiwan, and there will be a meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen there when it happens, January 13th to 15th. Uh, so just happening in a couple days from now this week. Back to you guys in London. Yeah, Emily, call me old-fashioned and call me um, skeptical, but I can't help thinking the timing just what is it now? Nine days before the inauguration, Mr. Pompeo tightening links with Taiwan. That's very interesting what it leaves as a legacy in terms of the relationship between Joe Biden's administration and China. Talking of China, China's factory prices fell at their slowest pace in 10 months in December as China's manufacturing sector continues to recover from the pandemic. The producer price index fell by 0.4% on the year, which was less than expected, whilst consumer prices returned to growth after an unexpected fall in November. Quick look at these Asian markets for you and where we are currently trading. Uh, the Hang Seng, 0.151% to the good. Uh, negative moves we're seeing on the Shanghai Composite by the tune of 1% as well. Uh, and a pretty flat Kospi, which, uh, again, the Kospi has been the outstanding performer on global markets so far this year. Jeffrey. Let's bring in uh, Freya Beamish then, uh, Chief Asia Economist for Pantheon Macroeconomics. Um, Freya, one of the features of the pickup in activity in China has been the strong supply side response, but the sluggishness we've seen around demand. Are we going to see in the early part of this year a shift in that softness in the services data? Um, yeah, I think in the services uh, inflation data, certainly we were expecting a, a quite a, a kind of a step change. Um, it's looking very kind of detached in China. The services inflation is looking very detached from the kind of the underlying um, short term indicators even that we have. So your kind of your um, your your price uh, indices of the of the PMIs and even the wage data such as it is in China. It's not great data, but it is actually showing a. a um, uh, pointing to imminent um, step change in, in services uh, inflation. So we can expect a, a strong uh, pickup there. Um, that doesn't tell us much on, on the global scale because it's kind of different. Um, obviously, services are, are much more disjointed uh, on, the, on the global scale. Um, but it's a kind of a, a microcosm of the, of the, wider, the wider global picture for, for services where you do have these, this huge pile of, of um, cash um, against what is probably a diminished services supply side. You've talked about the the, the, the supply side 
um, economy leading uh, in in terms of the in terms of China's recovery. Um, but the, the the supply side in terms of services and the farms that are able to cater to this demand um, globally and within China um, are probably ha- have su- taken such a great hit. And yet there's going to be this this um, pen- release of pent up demand um, it, with those cash balances in in households in the household. Um, sector. So we are expecting a big step change in, in, in China, and it probably is it's going to be even bigger in, in, in the rest of the world. Frey, is there any risk to that rebound in domestic demand from this very modest pickup we see in COVID cases in China? Uh, it's a little more than 100 new cases that have been reported in Hebei province. But that represents the highest number of new cases we've seen in China since July. And we know that the authorities respond very aggressively and very dramatically to these new cases. Will there be any risk, do you think, to that um, domestic demand-led recovery? It looks very small compared to developed markets, but um, in China, they, they take things much more seriously at an earlier stage, and, and that's paid dividends for them um, previously. So I'm expecting them to kind of to crack down quickly. It is the, the smallest kind of, it is a small outbreak. It's the biggest that we've seen, I think, in, in, in five months. Um, and the, the restrictions that are already in place in Hebei um, province, which surrounds Beijing, which is another element of kind of concern for the authorities. The restrictions that we've seen there already have had an impact possibly on kind of the the, the travel within Beijing, looking at the at the metro numbers. So I with the Lunar New Year coming up, it's almost like a rerun of, of last year that we're kind of they, that the authorities are more likely to do kind of more than they need to rather than less than they need to. So we could see a kind of a a bit of um, of damage in in the short term, but it's all a kind of a waiting game at this stage. And going back to our favourite kind of leading indicator of of M1 growth in China and including household household deposits as well, that tells us quite clearly that um, that Chinese GDP growth should be accelerating through this year um, up to kind of almost twice the the kind of the quarter on quarter run rate that we're seeing at the moment by the end of this year compared with um, the, the beginning of it. So there could be some kind of some nasty volatility at the beginning of the year, but that just means there'll be more um, uh, more kind of pent up demand released at the, at the end of the year. Um, and taking that back to where we started on on kind of prices, that probably feeds through the the, the M1 um, trends, probably feed through to commodity prices uh, of rising levels of commodity prices this year back to around kind of 2014. Um, levels and right. continuing to rise in in twenty in, in next year to kind of twenty eleven type right. of, of of levels. Um, so we can expect that to to, to continue rising just based on those M1 trends. So, Frey, if we piece together the different factors here around commodity prices to the industrial recovery, pent-up demand that you're witnessing on the domestic front, where does that leave monetary policy? Because a couple of analysts think that there might be room now for the PBOC to, to think about unwinding some of this extraordinary stimulus. Yet, if you think of where other central banks are at, it's obviously a difficult equation to start unwinding if others are still providing support. What levers do you think that the central bank will pull this year? I think I would be in the, definitely in the camp where uh, the, the, of China kind of front running that uh, tightening cycle that, that has to come globally at some at some stage. But China's recovery has front run um, the global recovery, um, and and as a result of that, we have seen this kind of natural updrift in in um, short term sovereign sovereign yields. That in itself will put some some break on the the uptrend in in M one. 
um, and, and the liquidity that's available to the, to the economy. Um, but I would expect the PBOC to, to get in there and kind of validate that um, in the second half of this year uh, through interest rate rises. Um, now that's that's kind of slightly at odds with their with their uh, aims on the renminbi. Um, we've already seen them kind of getting uncomfortable with with the strength of the renminbi. Um, with the the daily fixing, we can see them kind of pulling against the market, which is not something that they often do. So it's a, a clear signal that they're uncomfortable with the with the with the strength of the renminbi already, um, and also the FX reserves data that came out recently. That was that was suggesting that they're kind of pushing against that appreciation. Pressure. I think ultimately, though, the um, uh, COVID dominates the, the renminbi in the in the in the short run. Um, but but the PBOC, they'll they'll be worried about the renminbi, but they'll be much more focused on on um, on the kind of the domestic demand situation and and the the trends that we see in in money growth um, and what that implies for the property market and their kind of their longer term goals of the of um, right. trying to keep a rein on that that debt um, build up. Right, the producers have given me in their wisdom 30 seconds to ask you a question, so I will. Um, where's the first point of tension going to be between the Biden administration and uh, China? Uh, given the fact that you're economists and not a geopolitical strategist, I'm sure even you can answer that one, though. <laughs> well, these, I mean, these problems are not going to go away between China and, and the US. It's kind of classic kind of Thucydides trap of, of the two massive um, giants of, of the global stage. Um, that said, I'm hoping that Biden will be less um, volatile. That's not a very um, high bar, but um, we're hoping that he will be less volatile and there won't be so much of the kind of the the pointless um, uh, attacks between between the two nations. He can't step back completely. That 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 kind of boat has sailed. Um, China, you can't be a China dove anymore. Um, you have to be tough on on China. So we're not expecting these problems to go away in any in any sense of the word. Um, but we are expecting uh, hopefully some smoother smoother sailing. Um, although that's it's not 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 that difficult to be smoother yeah. sailing the relationship between Trump and, and Xi Jinping. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.